I heard a story this week, some of you may also have heard, it's an anniversary of sorts, a rather dubious one, but a young boy named John Graziano, who was in 1986 a second grader, and he was the first boy diagnosed with AIDS in Illinois, in a little suburb outside of Chicago. He had been adopted and he contracted AIDS through his biological mother. This adopted family took him in, and when they discovered this diagnosis, his pediatrician said, I will not treat him. I don't want to be his doctor. Some of you were alive during this time. There's a great deal of fear. There's a great deal of stigma. And so his own pediatrician said, no, I will not extend care to this eight-year-old boy. The father and mother, as you may have predicted, thought, oh, no, this is what awaits us. Even his pediatrician won't receive him. This is what his life is going to be like. He's going to belong on the outside. He's going to be ostracized. He's going to be forgotten. So once they had found this out, they went to the school principal, Principal Nielsen, and they said to him, what do you think we should do? And the principal, without hesitation, said, John, the little boy, stays in the school. And in reflection, he said, there was no question in my mind that that's where he should be. And the father, all these many years reflecting on that, said, I really didn't know how the principal was going to handle it. But when he made that statement, that John belongs here, it was such a big sigh of relief for me. Why the relief? Why did I, when I heard this, and maybe you when you hear it, why did I feel such a reverberation within when I heard, for instance, the children in the school, when people would say, who is it in your class that has AIDS? All the children would say, I have AIDS. I have AIDS. I have AIDS. Because they didn't want to single them out. They wanted to be in solidarity with them to say, you belong here. And the principal, when parents would say, which one of these kids has? He says, I'm not going to tell you. He belongs to us. Why does that reverberate in such a way? Well, I think it's because we have these deep longings, basic, fundamental desires that say, I need for someone to know me clean through and still take me in anyway. I want to be known. I want someone to delight in me. I want someone to think I'm fantastic. I want someone in whose eyes I can see that I've made them glad, that I'm an ingredient in their own smile. And we're terrified, on the other hand, of being considered somehow less than, of not belonging. Think of how many of you have done things that you're ashamed of, things that weren't you, because as C.S. Lewis said, you were lured by the caucus. So strong is your desire to be on the inside of things. So strong is your desire to belong that you will sometimes sacrifice parts of yourself that aren't what you stand for in order to be connected, in order to be accepted. They call this peer pressure in adolescence, but it happens in adulthood all the time. It's so fundamental of a desire. And one of the things that we're going to be talking about these next few weeks is 
This idea that Jesus is the desire of nations, as we just sang, as was read in Haggai, this long-promised Messiah that many, many, many folks in a, a chorus of voices in the scriptures, but also in Christian history, have said, ultimately, underneath so many of our desires is this desire that is latent and sometimes hidden for this one who was to come. We live in this overlap, knowing that Jesus has come to the earth in his first coming, that he's going to come again. That's what Advent is, this, this period of longing for his next coming, remembering his first. And we're going to look at desires that we have, strong desires and how Jesus may say something to those very desires. Because if you look at the scriptures, one thing you can say for sure about desire is that it is there. You have them. They're pronounced. Some of them are meant to guide you. Some of them are meant to be killed. Some of them are meant to be reoriented and redirected and re-aimed because we can, we can run after the wrong things to fulfill them. And sometimes we have such strong desires that we put them on the right things, but in the wrong way. And they do us harm. Garrison Keillor jokingly refers to the opening up of deer season when the deer are in the rut. Ask somebody, ask your friend what that means when you get home. And these male deer, when they're in the rut, they become insane. They are looking for love. And he says, and they start headbutting cars up on the highway. Their desire is so pronounced, find themselves a young doe, that their cleverness is dispelled and they don't hide anymore. They're out in the open so that men in deer stands with jaws full of Levi Garrett can blow them away. Their desire leads them into their own death because it's too strong. It makes them lose their head. But some desires are, are meant to lead us in a right path. You heard me mention earlier this desire for unfailing love. The proverb says, what a man desires is unfailing love. Which is a Bible word for belonging, for fidelity, for God's covenant faithfulness. This marriage that he has with us that says, I'll stick with you and this love for you will not easily quit. A geyser is about to erupt over here. I don't know what that sound is. I'm sorry, I got distracted. There's some noise here, and I'm expecting a gremlin to pop out. (laughs) Okay, if it does, you'll see my jujitsu on display. (laughs) If something comes at my back, let me know. What a man desires is unfailing love. I heard this week a a story on this American life that some of you hipsters listen to. And in it, they were interviewing these three girls, Julie, Jane, and Ella, and they were 13 and 14 years old, and they were interviewing them, Ira Glass was interviewing them, uh, their, their practices on Instagram, and they had posted a picture on Instagram, and they were waiting in the studio there for the likes that were going to come in, and the comments more specifically that were going to come in for them. 
And as these comments started coming in, there were two likes and then three and then six. And suddenly a whole host of likes and, and, a, and a bevy of comments coming at them. Gorgeous, pretty, stunning, you kill it. You're so pretty, so beautiful, perfect in all caps. And she says sometimes you get responses like cutest or prettiest or anything with an est. The superlative form of things, you see. And Ira Glass made this perceptive comment because, you see, for these girls, they said, well, if everybody's making these same comments about every single picture that you post, how does that mean anything? And they said, yeah, my mom looks at it and thinks, that's so stupid. And my dad just laughs and says, that's crazy. But Ira Glass says, it doesn't seem to matter what the words are. It seems to matter who's saying them. He was taking these girls more seriously than their parents, I think. It doesn't seem to matter what the actual words are. The words are speaking a kind of code. Yes, they're all the same. But it matters who's saying them. Because it's a, it's a barometer right there in real time of their social standing. Do I matter in the world? Do I belong? Are my friends that, do they care about my picture? Do they care enough to tell me that I'm pretty? That I'm gorgeous? That I'm the cutest? Do they care enough to do this? Do they care enough to affirm me? And one girl said, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like I'm a brand. And I'm the marketing director. And I'm the producer, the marketer, and even the product. And Ira Glass could have said, yeah, that's stupid. But he says, you know, it occurs to me that grown-ups do the same exact thing. See, because what they're clamoring for, and there's a devised system that gives some measure of this, I think. They're clamoring for, is there an unfailing love for me out there? Some kind of way that I can belong to know that I'm not an isolated young woman in the universe, that, to know that someone values me. And of course, it leaves you dangling if you post a picture and no one likes it. Not even your friends respond. That's cold. Leave you dangling like that. But so the Apostle Paul, though, would say that part of what he is been commissioned to do as his life's work is to take an ancient message and an ancient prediction, one that has walloped him upside the head and reoriented everything about how he sees everything, and he has been given this task of inviting people, short and tall and black and white and Asian and Russian and Latino, people of every stripe, to say, guess what? You can belong to the one for whom you were made to belong. The unfailing love that you seek in nearly every interaction that you have, every moment of every day, can be found should you look for it in the right place. He says, we've received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles, which is the nations, all the nations that aren't Jews, all the nations. Of course the Jews are included in this, But what was the surprise about this good news is that it was opened up to the people that the Gentiles thought were dogs. I mean, that the Jews thought were dogs. The people excluded from citizenship in God's 
covenant family. And Peter found out in this great vision from God, do not call anything unclean that I have called clean. The apostle has said, there is a way for you to get this urge satisfied. What a man desires is unfailing love. And you are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. The apostles' contention is that there is a love. And I know you know this in a way, but in another way we don't know it very much at all. There's a love that's more worth any other kind that you could get. And so it's worth thinking about and pursuing and maybe moving some other stuff out of your life so that you've got space for it. But he recognizes at the very bottom of your desire for unfailing love is this desire to belong. For someone to know you fully and to love you anyway. And the difference, of course, is when you're looking at Instagram, what you're hoping will happen is that someone will love you for the way that you have curated yourself. For the version of yourself that you've put online. But what if it were possible for someone to love you even if you weren't the cutest? Everybody can't look like me. Thank you. That was a joke, Courtney. I I told her if she laughed at jokes, I would give her $12. But what if somebody would look at you, even if you were ugly, and even if you had bad skin, and even if you had nasty things about your heart? What if you had jealousies, and what if you were afraid of failing, and what if you uh, secretly hoped that bad things happened to your good friend sometimes? And yet they still would be glad when you walked in the room. See, the big part of belonging to Jesus Christ is a fundamental first thing that happens is acceptance. But one of the things that we fear about acceptance is that we're not worthy of it. We're not clean enough for it. Lila, in the Marilyn Robinson book, it's called Lila, has been an orphan her whole life. And she listens as a preacher man down at the river as she wanders through this Iowa town through the depression, homeless, unwanted really, she hears a preacher at the time of baptism saying, this water of baptism makes you clean and acceptable. And she repeats the words. They stand out to her and reverberate in her insides. And she says, clean and acceptable? That would be something to know what that felt like even for one or two hours. To know what it felt like to be clean and acceptable because she said, I knew. She knew for a long time that there were words so terrible that you heard them with your whole body. Words like guilty. This whole book is a book about shame. A book about the exhaustion that she feels because she can't trust anyone. Because her face, she feels that her face betrays and says everything about her, that everyone out there is going to see all the awfulness and disgustingness that she feels about herself. She's sure that it communicates on her very face. It makes her want to stay away. It makes her want to hide. It makes her want to live on the shadows, in the shadows. It makes her terrified, clean and acceptable. It would be something to know what that felt like, even for an hour or two. And yet, here's the Apostle Paul saying, when this Jesus came into the world the first time, 
God in the flesh, he has offered his body as a physical sacrifice so that you may be presented before God without blemish and free from accusation, clean and acceptable. And you don't have to pose and you don't have to posture and you don't have to curate and you don't have to get the right angle. You just have to believe it. You have to make it a life intention that I'm going to live out of the truth of this reality that I belong to Jesus Christ. This is going to be the main thing about me. See, some of you know this, but we're not living as if it's our goal to train ourselves to believe that belonging to Jesus is what actually frees us to live and to love. It frees us to not be so severe with ourselves. You see, because if you start to believe that you have been accepted by God, if you have, as Paul Tillich says, the courage to accept your acceptance, you know what you can start to do? You can also start to have some kind of gentleness and kindness towards yourself. And this is a whole topic that most Presbyterians feel very uncomfortable with. This lady, Margaret Gunther, who's a spiritual director, says that Over the years, when she was spiritually directing and counseling women, she said she ran into a great number of people, I guess men and women alike, who when they would come to her for spiritual direction would say, I need you to be tough on me. I don't want anybody to let me get away with anything. And she said, when I began, I started thinking, wow, these people are really serious. These people are really intense. And what I need I need to make sure they don't find out that I'm a fraud. Like it intimidated her. People coming in and saying, don't let me get away with anything. Hold my feet to the fire. But she said, as I was around them enough, I started realizing it was a sham. They were posing. And one woman came to me and said, I want you to hold me accountable and don't let me make excuses. And she said, and I said to the woman, this high-powered businesswoman, I said, Why is it that you're so afraid of gentleness? And the woman began to weep. The same lady says that most women I know, their besetting sin is self-contempt. They walk around. If you're a mom, you're a terrible mother. You're not doing enough. You're a terrible wife. You're terrible at your job. You're failing everywhere. You're not good enough. And they said, the pride of men and the self-contempt of women makes for a hard combination for people to get along. But one of the great gifts that God gives to us is he says, if you will accept what Christ has done for you in his first coming, that you can live knowing that one day the thing that everyone really fears, whether they know it or not, is judgment and death. And that you're going to stand in judgment. You are going to be inspected. And the work of Christ means this. That God is going to say, wow, I'm so glad you're here. If some of you have known Ann Stewart, I used her this morning, I didn't plan to, but I was just thinking about it, because when we do the welcome time, Ann Stewart's one of our most senior members, and when we do the welcome time, she comes up to people, people she doesn't even know, people who have never performed one good deed for her, people who have never earned even an ounce of her favor, and you know what she does? She just acts like it's the best thing that ever happened to her that she met them. It's like, what's wrong with you, crazy woman? Why are you making people feel so loved and good? She's just excited. I'm so glad you're on the planet Earth. Wow. What did I do to get to be with you on this day? That's the kind of message that she communicates. 
That's what acceptance is. But you've got to work at believing it. You've got to clear out space to say, wait, wait, wait. If I'm constantly vying for other people's acceptance, if I'm constantly trying to manipulate things, if I'm, like Ian Crone says, if I'm walking around with a box of T-shirts and a box of invisible T-shirts that say, Team Crone on them, and every time I meet somebody, I'm handing them out, will you wear my Team T-shirt? If I can win them over and they can wear my Team T-shirt, I can feel good for a minute. Just like getting a gorgeous or cutest or prettiest. But see, it's like hot oil on a, or like oil on a hot manifold, isn't it? It just dissolves, it doesn't, it evaporates, it doesn't help you in a substantial way. He says, my life, Ian Crone says, my life is like an extended job interview. Everywhere I go, I'm trying to get people to hire me. And it's exhausting, mostly for them. (laughs) And what freedom for people who start to believe that God really likes me because of the work of Christ, that he sent him into the world, that he might undo the works of the devil, that he might take away my suspicion of him, that he might legitimate my existence before him, and he's happy that we're his. We belong to him. We belong to him. And it's by grace, this is what Paul says, that calls us to this obedience that comes through faith. We start to trust him and say, I want to do what you're doing. I want to listen to you. There was a story that I heard this week about a boy with autism. And his parents had taken him to the mall to visit Santa Claus. Santa Claus, this dignified and established fellow with his blazing red suit and his luxurious beard with hipster beard wax in it. He didn't have beard wax. Santa doesn't use beard wax. And he was a real-looking Santa Claus. And this little autistic boy was terrified of him, which I realize is the first time in the history of the universe that anybody's been terrified of Santa. No, it happens all the time, but this little boy went down to the floor. He lay down on the floor. I'm not getting in that strange red man's lap, he implicitly said. So he was lying on the floor at Santa's feet. What do you do? Dignified Santa got off his Santa throne. And he lay down in the floor with the boy at the mall. At the mall! That's almost instant death, a promise of death to lie down on the floor at the mall. But because this little boy who was scared was lying down, Santa lay down with him and they were playing with his trucks or cars or whatever. He legitimated who he was. He got down on his level. And that's what we celebrate. This is this promise of Messiah that God would come off his throne, not a Santa throne, but the throne of the kingdom of heaven. And he would stoop down real low to a certain death, worse than a mall floor, but, which is pretty bad. And he would lie down next to you in your fear. And you think, if a God would do that, if he would summon me with unfailing love like that, I ought to listen to him. He might know good things for me. He might know what's best for me in a way that I don't know what's best for me. And if he has accepted me and legitimated me like that, listened to me like that, come near to me like that, you know what I can do? 
I can be gentle and patient with myself. You have permission. Leon Payne has said that one of the great barriers to Christian growth, and I see it all around, is the failure to accept oneself. You have to agree to be the person that God's made you to be. If, you, if you're busy hating the self that God loves, you're not going to get anywhere. You're going to be constantly, constantly trying to get people to join your team. You're going to be constantly uh, criticizing others, feeling in competition with others, feeling jealousy with others, feeling inadequate, hiding from others. You're going to be not in relationship. You're going to prefer texting to talking. You're going to prefer emailing to sitting over a table with somebody, posting things, rather than walking alongside someone. Because when you're doing those things, you can be clever. You can edit. You can curate yourself. You can present a good self. In real time, who knows what might happen? But connection might happen. Oh, if you start to believe, as C.S. Lewis has said, that if God, if the author is satisfied with the work, the work can be satisfied with itself. If God has accepted us, if he has been delighted in us, if he has been glad that we're his and told us that he is going to see us through to the end, then we can also exercise some patience and gentleness with ourselves, which will turn us out to exercise patience and gentleness with other selves. Some of you are severe. You are. I'm sometimes severe. And I find that when I'm most severe, and people who are most severe generally have a very corrosive and diseased view of their own own selves. They're severe with themselves. And they think it therefore legitimates them being that way to other people. That's not what people who belong to Jesus believe. If you start to think about this, you start to realize that we belong to Jesus Christ. This is the main thing about us. You know what it also can do? You accept your acceptance, you start being patient with yourself, and then you start being a community of welcome to all kinds of people who are different than you are. Instead of these politicized racial wars right now, you hear protests. If you're white, which, I mean, there's a lot of white people in here. If you're white and you hear black people protesting about racial things, instead of saying, those kids need to shut up, maybe you lie down on the floor like Santa. And you say, how do I legitimate? What's it like to be them? You start thinking about what's it like to feel like you're on the outside of this experience of America? What's it like? You start doing it with everybody. What's it like? Instead of saying, my wife, she's just crazy. My husband's just a monster. What's it like to be him? What's it like to be her? You can be gentle because you've been dealt with gently. I close with this. There's a thing that Steve Brown has said, which I think is really lovely. How do you, how do you get somebody to love you that you love, but they don't know you exist? Interesting question. I think about when I was a 15-year-old, and I had my eyes set on a certain young filly. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're welcome, honey. This, this, this really beautiful girl, Kathy Smith, and I. And so I, I, was, uh, I was about to make my move. And so what I did was a very courageous thing. I call up this other girl who went to school with Kathy, and I said, Hey, can you talk to Kathy? 
and see if it's okay if I call her? I was suave. And Kathy said, when Preston said, hey, do you mind if Eric calls you? She said, who's Eric? Mm. We didn't have Instagram, but that was thankfully a Snapchat moment. It disappeared like that, thankfully. You have no proof of it if I didn't just tell you. So how do you get somebody who you love and who are you're interested in to be interested in you back if they don't know you even exist? Well, C. Brown says it's an old story. And it's a story that, that makes sense when you hear Walker Percy when they say, why did you get converted? And he said, well, the theolo- theological reason for that is something called grace. That I read this article called The Difference Between a Genius and an Apostle. That Soren Kierkegaard wrote. He said, the difference between a genius and an apostle is this. A genius discovers something that anybody at any time can understand and discover themselves. Other smart people can corroborate it. But an apostle, apostle doesn't discover anything. An apostle is given a message that is a piece of news. That's not corroboratable. It's not something that anybody at any time could just discover on their own. It's something specific that someone has to tell you. And the apostle makes a big deal in all of his letters about the fact that God has called him as an apostle to share grace with the nations, that he has a message from Jesus Christ because God wants people who don't know about him to believe that he exists and that he loves them. And so Steve Brown says, you know what happens is in the movies, a man will be infatuated with a woman and she'll be on stage and he'll send her flowers. And he'll send her an anonymous note. He'll make his love known for her, just like the prophets sent us these notes that said, one day one is coming that everybody desires down deep, whether they know it or not. One day there's one coming who's going to make belonging a reality, who's going to cleanse us and make us acceptable, who's going to fix all sad things and make them come untrue. And the apostles did the same thing. They sent the flowers and they sent the notes. And then at the time of the incarnation, God signed the card. Said, here I am. I call you to belong to me, says Jesus Christ. Do you want to be clean? Do you want to be acceptable? Do you want to walk around without a nagging sense that you're not enough? Don't do that. Instead, come to Jesus Christ and be made clean. Believe that you're acceptable and then have mercy on yourself and mercy toward other selves so that we can be the people of welcome, the people of belonging like he has made for us. It isn't a secret anymore. It isn't a mystery anymore. God has said, Unfailing love is available for any who will take it. I dare you to take it, he says. I dare you to open up your mouths and receive like a little baby bird from its mother. Receive the unfailing love that you desire. Let's pray.